Welcome to Deep End of Public Education. My name is Kristen Grubbs, and I'm looking forward to our time together today as I'll be sharing some insight into the recent Supreme Court decision regarding affirmative action and how it relates to equity efforts in public education. This will be a jam-packed episode and a bit longer than usual, so I appreciate your choice to listen in today. Let's do a little review now before we dive into the deep end of public education. If I were to ask you what qualifies a person to be a good manager in business, what qualities would you list? I personally would say a good manager needs to listen, organize, teach, correct, and encourage. They need to have integrity and grow their team, not just as a group, but individually as well. Nowhere on the list of traits would you find race or skin color. That's because neither race nor skin color determines one's character. If we turn the discussion to education, would you say race or skin color can determine a teacher's ability to teach well or determine a student's ability to learn? Does race or skin color determine one's intelligence or their ability to contribute to society? You might think these questions are ridiculous, and I'd agree, but the existence of affirmative action and equity efforts makes them extremely relevant and, quite honestly, necessary. On June 29, 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned affirmative action, which has been in full effect following the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, having put into place race-based systems of acceptance in business and education. For nearly half a century, many universities in the U.S. have been using race-based admissions measures to assume some level of diversity in their student population as well as their teaching population. In October of last year, an organization called Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. argued their case before the Supreme Court, claiming the use of affirmative action at Harvard and the University of North Carolina violates the Equal Protection Clause afforded Americans under the 14th Amendment. The case against the University of North Carolina resulted in a 6-3 decision supporting the claim made by Students for Fair Admissions. The Harvard judgment had a similar result with a 6-2 split with Biden's recent appointee, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, recusing herself from decision. I'm a fan of primary sources, so let's first check the language of the U.S. Constitution. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment reads, No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. This is referred to as the Equal Protection Clause, and it is the focus of the affirmative action debate. Chief Justice Roberts delivered the majority opinion on the issue, acknowledging our country's history of failing to live up to the clause's core commitments, while also celebrating judicial decisions that have honored the Equal Protection Clause. In 1896, Plessy v. Ferguson, which questioned whether separate train cars for blacks and whites were a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, resulted in a divisive practice coined as separate but equal. This practice was allowed to continue until Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 desegregated schools. Chief Justice Roberts noted in the Students for Fair Admissions case, the approach of trying to derive equality from inequality is folly, as the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s exposed the inevitable truth of the 14th Amendment that separate cannot be equal. 
Brown versus Board of Education afforded us the clear truth that no state has any authority under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to use race as a factor in affording educational opportunities among its citizens. And the court responded, declaring the fundamental principle that racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional. Following Brown versus Board of Education, several other cases ran through the courts, undoing the laws that violated the Equal Protection Clause and undermined the equality declared in our Constitution. Gale versus Browder invalidated segregation and busing. Dawson versus Mayor and City Council of Baltimore desegregated public beaches and bathhouses. Loving versus Virginia struck down laws denying interracial marriage. Hernandez versus Texas addressed composition of juries and about a dozen other cases over the last 60 years have addressed these violations of our constitutionally protected rights. Unfortunately, affirmative action was allowed to continue. Chief Justice Roberts stated it well when he wrote, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. Regents of University of California versus Bach in 1978 declared the guarantee of equal protection cannot mean one thing when applied to one individual and something else when applied to a person of another color. If both are not accorded the same protection, then it is not equal. Interestingly, despite this clear understanding of our Constitution, the practice endured. I'll explain why in a moment. Now that we've reviewed a bit of judicial history on equal protection under the law, I want to be sure everyone listening understands what affirmative action is. The American Heritage Dictionary defines affirmative action as a policy or program providing advantages for people of a minority group who are seen to have traditionally been discriminated against with the aim of creating a more egalitarian society through preferential access to education, employment, health care, welfare, etc. For example, Harvard College and the University of North Carolina, as well as other universities, have tedious admissions processes which give a point-like system to students based on certain criteria, including race. As the pool of student candidates is narrowed, those who are of a minority race may have an advantage over other students as the universities strive to fill a certain quota, shall we say, of minorities so as to endure some level of diversity among their student population. This practice often produces an indirect disadvantage to students who are not of a minority race. Naturally, this practice raises concerns regarding its constitutionality. This practice has been allowed to continue despite its constitutionality being questioned in Regents of University of California versus Bach 45 years ago, and again in Grutter versus Bollinger in 2003, despite a standard of judicial review called strict scrutiny that was established during Chief Justice Earl Warren's time in the Supreme Court in the 1950s and 60s. Strict scrutiny, the highest level of standard review in the judiciary, is a two-step examination to determine the constitutionality of a law or practice. For the sake of affirmative action, Chief Justice Roberts explained that step one demands the court first ask whether the racial classification is used to further compelling governmental interests. If that is the case, then in step two, the court must ask 
Whether the government's use of race is narrowly tailored, meaning necessary, to achieve that interest. In Regents of University of California versus Bach, a 35-year-old white male named Alan Bach had applied for admission to the University of California Medical School at Davis, but was denied admittance both times because the university reserved 16 of its 100 entry spaces for qualified minorities under the school's affirmative action program. Despite Mr. Bach's college GPA and test scores exceeding those of any of the minority student applicants, he was rejected. The Supreme Court was called upon to answer whether the University of California's affirmative action program violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The court decided 8 to 1 in favor of Mr. Bach ordering the university to admit him while also saying the university was allowed to continue considering race in the admissions process. It's quite a confusing outcome as Mr. Bach's admission opportunity was harmed by a program put in place to supposedly prevent discrimination. This is an example of the court allowing a narrowly acceptable practice to persist in an attempt to right a wrong of the past, that being inequalities due to discrimination. This has been quite a journey into judicial history, but let's take this information with us as we dive in and explore how the overturning of affirmative action applies to equity measures in the deep end of public education. In summary, the universities addressed in the recent case held to their affirmative action programs, citing goals of training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge based on diverse outlooks, promoting a robust marketplace of ideas, and preparing engaged and productive citizens. Chief Justice Roberts responded, saying the universities fail to operate their race-based admissions programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under the rubric of strict scrutiny. Let's apply the strict scrutiny test to these goals. Do these goals of training future leaders, acquiring new knowledge based on diverse outlooks, promoting a robust marketplace of ideas, and preparing engaged and productive citizens further any compelling governmental interests? In general, these ideas are great, but they are not specific to minority students, nor are they measurable. Thus, they should not be used to cling to a race-based admissions program. Even if these goals had fit to further some sort of compelling governmental interest, like ensuring equal opportunity to minors, how would these goals be measured? Is there an adequate number of future leaders? Is there a limit to what volume of knowledge based on diverse outlooks is acceptable for the goal to be met? Is there a way of measuring how much robust is on a scale of marketplace ideas? How many citizens must be engaged and productive to be able to say that affirmative action at a university is no longer needed? In other words, unless the goals are well-defined, measurable, and specifically met only by utilizing affirmative action, then the practice is not narrowly tailored nor necessary, so it must end. In contrast, to give a measurable example of this test of strict scrutiny at work, a sidestep to the Equal Protection Clause that's acceptable to courts is in a prison that is riddled with race tension that has led to outbreaks of violence. In this case, separation of inmates based on race has been allowed and practiced at times to curb violence. 
This type of practice can temporarily relieve tension in a hostile environment when utilized with clear goals and limits. The number of violent incidences as well as their frequency can be measured and tracked to support temporary or prolonged segregation of inmates by race. The use of affirmative action in universities must be just as easily measured and was allowed only until the perceived goals were reached. The problem with this is that both Harvard and UNC had no end to affirmative action in sight. Chief Justice Roberts stated this very clearly when he wrote, quote, the court has permitted race-based admissions only within the confines of narrow restrictions. University programs must comply with strict scrutiny. They may never use race as a stereotype or negative, and at some point, they must end. Respondents' admission systems, however, well-intentioned and implemented in good faith, fail each of these criteria. They must therefore be invalidated under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Because racial discrimination is invidious in all contexts, we have required that universities operate their race-based admissions programs in a manner that is sufficiently measurable to permit judicial review under the rubric of strict scrutiny. Classifying and assigning students based on their race requires more than an amorphous end to justify it. Respondents have fallen short of satisfying that burden, end quote. As I've researched equity efforts in my local school district, I have found that any time data is being shared through a lens of equity, it is being shared by race. Yes, there have been times when other forms of diversity are shared, but the one true measure of diversity and equity in my school district is race. Action Plan 2.1 of my district's Comprehensive School Improvement Plan is to recruit, hire, retain, and promote diverse staff. Further stating the district wants to develop and monitor a system to recruit, retain, and promote a diverse workforce within the district, increasing staff diversity as representative of the student population. I don't have to look any further than my district's annual human resources reports to see what is meant by diverse. In my district, it means non-whites. If 90.91% of my district staff is white and my district is saying our staff is 8.82% diverse, it doesn't take a mathematician to figure out that whites aren't considered any part of diverse staff. Action Plan 1.5 of my district's Comprehensive School Improvement Plan is to increase opportunities and participation for extracurricular and co-curricular involvement for students of all backgrounds and levels. Data shared during this goal tells participation by school, then overall grade participation by race. By saying students of all backgrounds, it must mean all races. The data isn't broken down by socioeconomic status or by abilities or disabilities. Action Plan 2.3 of my district's Comprehensive School Improvement Plan is to implement systemic processes to include student voice and feedback in decisions related to the culture and climate of our schools. To do this, my district has contracted with Panorama Education, Inc. to distribute student surveys on belonging, student climate and culture, and social-emotional learning. When I read the data gathered from these surveys, it is always broken down by race. When disciplinary or academic reports are shared, they are always disaggregated by race. The students in my district are constantly analyzed according to their race. It is the one continuous component of their educational experience. 
My question is why? Is race such a determinant that it must be applied in every examination of a student's educational experience? What is so pivotal in a student's race that it must be the one constant in evaluating whether the student is getting the educational tools they need to succeed? How does affirmative action apply to this? Discussing the admissions process and how universities look at race as a determinant for admission, Chief Justice Roberts remarked, a benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability to contribute to the university. In other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. He continued, many universities have far too long done just the opposite, and in doing so, they have concluded wrongly that the touch of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin. Our constitutional history does not tolerate that choice. Why can't this be the way our schools work? Why can't each child have their educational needs and successes be based solely on their application of the teaching they're given? Why must every aspect of a child's education be looked at through the narrow lens of their race? In the 2003 case of Grutter versus Bollinger, a white female named Barbara Grutter claimed she was denied admission to the University of Michigan Law School due to their affirmative action practice of giving a greater chance of admission to applicants who belong to certain racial minority groups than those who are from other racial groups. In this case, the court sided with the university, with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor delivering the opinion of the court, writing, Universities cannot establish quotas for members of certain racial groups or put members of those groups on separate admission tracks. Universities also cannot insulate applicants who belong to certain racial or ethnic groups from the competition for admission. However, she continued, Universities can consider race or ethnicity more flexibly as a plus factor in the context of individualized consideration of each and every applicant. When the admission systems of Harvard and UNC were detailed in the recent case with Students for Fair Admissions, the court affirmed the detriments of the practice of giving some students a plus factor. Referring to the limitations I just mentioned from the Grutter case, Chief Justice Roberts noted, quote, These limits were intended to guard against two dangers that all race-based government actions portends. The first is the risk that the use of race will devolve into illegitimate stereotyping. Universities were thus not permitted to operate their admissions programs on the belief that minority students always or even consistently express some characteristic minority viewpoint on any issue. The second risk is that race would be used not as a plus but as a negative to discriminate against those racial groups that were not the beneficiaries of the race-based preference. A use of race accordingly could not occur in a manner that unduly harmed non-minority applicants." End quote. It was the Grutter case that placed one final requirement on race-based admissions practices, being that at some point, they must end. 
What does this whole debate afford us in the conversation about race-filtered education in the public school setting? Why must goals and analyses be broken down by race? Is this way of evaluating data helping or hurting those it intends to serve? Is it helping or hurting those it implicates as privileged? College admissions are zero-sum, meaning what advantages one student disadvantages another. Is that applicable to public education? When my district says they want the teaching population to look like the student population, they mean they want the 90% of white teachers to be 75% because that's the percentage of white students we have. That would either mean that 15% of our teachers would be out of a job or my district better start hiring a lot more minority teachers until the number of white teachers meets that ideal percentage. But wait, how does that actually benefit anyone? Would hiring two to three Hawaiian or Pacific Islander teachers just to satisfy a quota really do the job of meeting our students' needs? This is when those questions I brought up at the beginning of the episode come back into play. Does a person's race determine whether they'd be a good teacher? Does it determine whether a student will be successful? Assuming either of these to be true would be falling back on the illegitimate stereotypes Chief Justice Roberts warned about. Looking over my district's equity plan and how it's been implemented, I am befuddled. Much like the use of affirmative action to make up for past prejudices, I find the tactics used by my district to reach equity in our schools rather wasteful and, quite frankly, in violation of the Equal Treatment Clause. Goal one of my district's equity plan, ensure district-wide practices reflect the needs of our diverse school community, support the integrated focus and analysis of equity into organizational policies, procedures, and leadership. What does this mean? My district implemented an educational equity policy. This policy employs a definition of educational equity sourced from an organization called the National Equity Project. To give you an idea of what the National Equity Project is about, on their website, they say their mission is to, quote, transform the experiences, outcomes, and life options for children and families who have been historically underserved by our institutions and systems, end quote. At the top of their resources page, they highlight a quote by Malcolm X, which says, a new world order is in the making, and it is up to us to prepare ourselves that we may take our rightful place in it. Their website has articles about white supremacy and how whites must take responsibility for their part in racial inequities in our country. The National Equity Project has a program of their own called the Black Teacher Project, which declares it exists to sustain and develop black teachers to lead and reimagine schools as communities of liberated learning. I wish I had time to dive into the meaning behind several words in that statement, but I'll have to save that for another time. Point being, my district saw this website, racist statements and all, as a legitimate source for something so pivotal that they based an entire policy around it. Moving on, goal two of my district's equity plan is to develop and implement a comprehensive professional development support model that enhances governance, district and building administrators, instructional leadership in the area of equitable and cultural practices. What does this mean? My district contracted with a duo of authors 
named Floyd Cobb and John Cranapple, who wrote Belonging Through a Culture of Dignity, which my district is using for professional development. These authors were hired to train our teachers, the majority being white, how to, as they put it, confront the reality of who they are, implying there is something inherently wrong with them. Episodes 5 through 8 of my podcast discuss this book in more detail. Their book has many flaws and red flags, but two main problems are how they redefined the word dignity to fit their needs, and how they actively blame whites and whiteness for the disparities in schools, all while claiming that all people have value and we must treat each other as such. It is difficult to hear any sense of inclusion through the hypocrisy in their teachings. The other four equity goals touch on topics I previously mentioned, like student voice and equity in hiring, among other things. Overall, my district is actively employing the use of consultants like Cobb and Crownapple, Panorama Education, Inc., and even one called Equal Opportunity Schools to force race as deep as possible into public education in my area. Equal Opportunity Schools may easily be confused with something like the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is a government-run agency that holds businesses accountable for equal treatment under the law regarding hiring, retaining, and training employees. Equal Opportunity Schools is no such agency. It is an organization with a mission to strengthen educator and system leader capacity to break down barriers to increase access, belonging, and success in rigorous college and career prep secondary school courses for students of color and low-income students so they may thrive in their post-secondary pursuits and life goals. This may sound good to some people, but their narrow focus on the success of students of color is a mere glimpse into their efforts. I suggest you go to their website and check out their recommended reading list. It may enlighten you a bit more to their intentions when you see books like White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo or How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi, or White Rage by Carol Anderson. There's a message written in plain sight, almost too obvious to ignore. Yet there's a toxic apathy that has infected our communities, blinding people to the racist notions right in front of us. It's almost as though our schools are taking a giant step backwards, welcoming a system that regularly looks at a student through the narrow lens of race. If we are to be the country Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of, where we are each judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character, then why is every aspect of our kids' education being filtered by race? Why must our schools be force-fed the doctrine of race-based education under the guise of equity? Much like segregation was an accepted way of living prior to the progress the civil rights movement brought, Our current world is being fed a similar lie that equity is the end-all, be-all solution to every contributing variable to the achievement gap. Equity is pushed as the way to educate, the way to do business, and anyone who pushes back on this idea is called a bigot or white supremacist. How is this any different than people in the 1950s being called names for accepting racial integration? Why can't we all heed the wisdom of the Supreme Court as shared in Chief Justice Roberts' opinion of the court? Quote, One of the principal reasons race is treated as a forbidden classification is that it demeans the dignity and worth of a person to be judged by ancestry instead of by his or her own merit and essential qualities. 
But when a university admits students on the basis of race, it engages in the offensive and demeaning assumption that students of a particular race, because of their race, think alike. At the very least, alike in the sense of being different from non-minority students. In doing so, the university furthers stereotypes that treat individuals as the product of their race, evaluating their thoughts and efforts, their very worth as citizens, according to a criterion barred to the government by history and the Constitution. End quote. How, then, are equity measures that universally use race to analyze all data to inform educational paths and program decisions allowed to persist in public education? These are educational institutions that receive state and federal monies not to mention the majority of property taxes, as funding for these divisive race-based equity measures. Why is this allowed to continue? Equity is the shiny new thing that sounds good to the average person, so why not, right? This is a wolf in sheep's clothing, a Trojan horse of sorts, escorting toxic ideologies and practices into our schools right under the nose of our parents, grandparents, and community members. Those of us who see the ruin ahead of us need to stand up, raise our voice, and wake our country up to the evils hidden in warm, fuzzy ideas like inclusion and belonging. Our children are worth it. Our future is worth it. We've got to be bold and speak truth, sharing what we've learned from history, contrary to Ibram Kendi's opinion, present discrimination is not the solution to past discrimination. Let us do as Chief Justice Roberts reiterated throughout the opinion of the court, saying the core purpose of the Equal Protection Clause is to eliminate racial discrimination, and to do that means to eliminate all of it. It cannot be okay to discriminate in some instances and not okay in others. It must end so all Americans are accorded the same protection under the law. Thank you for diving in with me today. I know this is a lot of information to take in and consider. I hope this episode gave you fresh ideas to consider and hopefully encouraged you to get involved in exposing these wrongs in our schools. If you're interested in reading the entirety of the Supreme Court opinions, I'll post a link on my Deep End of Public Education Facebook page. If you have questions, you can shoot me a private message on there as well, or you can email me at mark4verse22 at protonmail.com. That's M-A-R-K, the number four, V-E-R-S-E, the number 22, at protonmail.com. I hope you like and share this so we can spread the word and bring positive, truth-centered change to our schools. If you're interested in learning more about my research and what I've been diving into, you can find my book on Amazon. You'll have to narrow the search down to books, then enter my whole title, Deep End of Public Education. Amazon is doing what they can to bury my book and make it difficult for people to find. If you know a publisher that may want to publish my book, I'm up for submitting it elsewhere. Thank you for your willingness to spend a little extra time with me today. If you have any thoughts to share or have any questions about how to dive into your local district, I'd love to hear from you. Just search Deep End of Public Education on social media or email me again at mark4verse22 at protonmail.com. Join me next time for another swim in the deep end.